You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of Yahweh. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of Yahweh. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of Yahweh. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of Yahweh. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of Yahweh forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you, but Yahweh your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, Yahweh your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because Yahweh your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of Yahweh. When you are encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing, If any man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal emission, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp, but when evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water, and as the sun sets, he may come inside the camp. You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go to it, and you shall have a trowel with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it, and turn back and cover up your excrement, because Yahweh your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy, so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of Yahweh your God in payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to Yahweh your God. You shall not charge interest on loans, to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent. For interest, you may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that Yahweh your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. If you make a vow to Yahweh your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For Yahweh your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to Yahweh your God what you have promised with your mouth. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, 
You may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 670 of this podcast. Today is Tuesday, July 25th, 2023, which is to say that we are about a week away from my oldest son's 16th birthday, Josiah David Mullet. Almost 16, hard to believe. In the meantime, between now and then, I have two 15-year-olds because Eli came along not quite a year after his older brother was born, our firstborn, and our secondborn are less than a year apart. Pretty fantastic. Pretty amazing. It was difficult in its way, but we were young, and we have gotten more spaced out. I think you can tell that we're getting more tired, my wife and I, as we get older, but we're not old. We're not old. We're in our mid-30s. That's not old. That is not old. Someday. We will be, Lord willing, but in the meantime, in the meantime, it's hard to believe that I have an almost 16-year-old, just almost, and if you round it up, yes, he's 16, 16 going on 26 as far as I'm concerned, 15 going on 25 as far as I'm concerned, but that reading of Deuteronomy 23, I want to talk through, and before I do... (laughs) I want to point out that this whole business of podcasting, my whole podcast, the whole premise of it is fraught with peril. And when I say it's fraught with peril, what I mean is that there are so many instances, pretty much every minute of every hour that I podcast is loaded with opportunity to give offense, to upset, to ruffle feathers. And it is very, very easy for someone listening to this podcast, I would imagine, to come to one of three conclusions. One conclusion, potentially, is, hey, this is really great. This Garrett guy is really smart. He's got a lot to say and how impressive that he's able to podcast in an extemporaneous way and he just speaks and it makes a kind of sense and wow, this is really great. And if you're one of those people out there who thinks that, here's what I'll tell you. I'm not always correct, but I'm seldom in doubt. (laughs) But when I am in doubt, where I go is back to God's word. And that is why when I am incorrect in my own private judgments, I am still confident because I know that my being finite, my being fallible, my being mistaken on many things, or having incomplete information, having an incomplete picture, is part of it. Welcome to the human condition. But I also know, more importantly, that God's grace is sufficient for me. And if you're not accustomed to being confident in that, I hope that that's something that comes through in episode after episode, that the confidence is not to be in our own faculties. The confidence is supposed to be in the character of God that God is 
true, and he tells us the truth, and he has no reason to lie whatsoever. By his very nature, he cannot lie, he will not lie, but he has no reason to lie. He's not a man that he should lie, his word tells us. Why would he need to lie to us? Uh, The simple answer is he wouldn't, he doesn't, he won't. And so you can have confidence in that, especially when you're coming to his word and you read it and you know how to read. (laughs) If you know how to read and you are intent on reading it, it won't return void of power. And you can be confident in that. And that's where your confidence should lie. Don't let your confidence rest with me at the end of the day. I do hope you can trust me. I do hope that. But hold that loosely in your hand, how much you trust me or any human being who is fallible and finite like I am, like you are, like we all are. The second category of people, I think, are those who read and are offended and they ascribe bad motives to what it is that I'm saying on this podcast. And what I want to say to those people is, first of all, please double check that you're not just looking for a dismissive. You're not looking for an excuse to wave off what I'm saying if what I'm saying is true. If what I have said offends you, please, 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 for your own sake, if you are wise, it is to your benefit. If you're foolish, well, then that's also on your account first and foremost. For your own sake, consider what I'm saying for whether it's true and whether it is wisdom, particularly if it's coming from God's word. I would hope that nobody is actually really, truly offended by the truth. They're offended at being challenged, and they take it personally that I would be the messenger. I would be the one who is offending them. If Garrett would just stop talking about X, Y, or Z, then we wouldn't have a problem. Well, be careful, right? Be careful in thinking in those ways because that is very easily unproductive, unfruitful for you and for anybody else under your influence, that's very quickly a trap. And you might tune me out if that's what you need to do in order to maintain a certain level of equilibrium. So be it. I hope you won't tune out. I I hope you won't tune out God. That's what I'll say. For your sake, uh, really, if you don't listen to my podcast because I offended you, then okay. I'm I will be okay. I will survive. First, I was afraid. I was petrified, but I will survive. The other thing I would say to that category of people, if you would ascribe bad motives, ill intent, malice, there's a possibility that sometimes you're right (laughs) too. (laughs) There's a possibility that sometimes I don't have as pure motives as I should hope to think. And That might come as a shock to some people for me to admit, but I think we all need to start with that as a possibility when we endeavor to speak or when we endeavor to do something that we're not doing it from selfish ambition or vain conceit. That has to require, if we're going to be vigilant about that and on guard and watching out and trying to abide by that, it requires, it necessitates that it be in the realm of possibility in our minds if we can't even entertain the possibility that we would do something from selfish ambition or vain conceit, then we're going to have a very hard time guarding our own hearts from those influences, from those motivations. We're going to have a very hard time being disciplined 
and admitting when we're wrong. And so far be it from us, far be it from any of us to rule that out. And that's another benefit to reading God's word. Whether you listen to my podcast is of secondary import. If you would read God's word, if you would listen to God and get wisdom from God and get understanding from the Lord, then you would also have a category for assessing your own engagements. And this is the secret. This is the key. There would be a abundant supply of grace and mercy when you confess and when you turn from that way of relating. Selfishness, self-love, love of pleasure, love of comfort and convenience instead of love of truth, love of what is good. Don't go that direction. Many go that direction. Don't go that direction. That way is death. But life and death are in the power of the tongue. And you want the life-giving words that you would say, the things that you would tell people around you or comment on or express, you want that to be life-giving because it comes from a place of loving God. It comes from a place of loving your maker and your neighbor as yourself, but he gives more grace. The third category of people, and this category I struggle probably the most with, the third category of people are those who don't ascribe bad motives. They think, oh no, I think Garrett has good intentions, right? They don't necessarily put much stock in what I have said, what I have to say, but they come up with a different story, a different narrative to excuse themselves for dismissing what I'm saying, anything that I'm saying that they wouldn't want to hear. And they tell themselves this story as a way of not having negative emotions because that's their first interest. Their first interest is to maintain emotional equilibrium with a kind of pietism driving it. And this, I would say, is primarily going to be folks out there who are professing Christians. If they're not upset, if they're not angry and offended and ascribing bad motives, then the next thing is to say, uh, basically, poor, foolish Garrett, right? Poor, foolish Garrett, or in a more aggressive version of this dismissal, this kind of ad hominem, I don't know that Garrett is entirely well. And why I include that as a possible response from people who listen to my podcast, who have listened over the years, even if they didn't continue listening, the point isn't that you have to keep on listening to my podcast or else you think I'm a jerk or you think I'm a crazy person. But hear me when I say, you could be right, <laughs> right? You could be right that I am a fool and I am wasting my time. And this is all just a major distraction from what life is supposed to really be about, which is getting all you can, canning all you get, sitting on the can, whoever dies with the most stuff wins. You could be thinking me very foolish because that's not what this podcast is about. That's not what it's for. That's what I'm trying to actually speak against in the context of the church in particular, even if I'm talking about what's going on in the broader world along the way, or to illustrate the point that the world is coming into our churches via us, right? We are in the world, even if we're not of the world because we're in Christ, we are certainly in the world. But you could be right that I am a fool or that I'm a crazy person. 
Those are possibilities. And I don't want to completely rule them out because sometimes I can be foolish. Now, what differentiates sometimes being foolish from being characterized by, known for being a fool, I would say first and foremost, the fear of the Lord. And if what I am doing, if what I am saying is what I believe that the Lord would have me to say, so help me God, this is what my reading of his word and my conscience and my comprehension of the implications and even just the plain meaning of the text leads me to say and leads me to do, well then, how can that be foolish? At least internal consistency-wise, with regards to the scripture, that can't be foolish. That's not foolish. In fact, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And so, oh, by the way, Old Testament and New Testament, very often God puts his people into positions where he gets representation from them as they look the fool. Because what's being illustrated, what's being emphasized, what's being highlighted is that God's wisdom is better than the wisdom of the world. God's foolish ones, as they're thought, as we are considered, are wiser than the wisest men according to popular polling. Just because God's people are not considered wise in many cases by the world that is perishing, which looks at the gospel testimony about Jesus Christ as foolishness, that doesn't mean that we are fools, but sometimes it would seem to me God plays up that tension between his people and the world that is at enmity with him still. He plays up that tension by putting his people in situations, his servants in situations where they are going to look foolish, but actually there is a profound wisdom to it. And God is getting representation, which is not foolish at all. Particularly if you're the one bringing representation and you are faithful in that, and it's coming from a place of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself, there's a reward in that, particularly all the more, no less, if men hate you for it, if they speak all manner of evil against you for his namesake. Now that if is critically important because you could look like an idiot because you are an idiot, not because you're representing Christ well. So make sure that you're sure that the folly so-called is so-called and it's coming from a place of love for God. It's not just you relishing the opportunity to make other people uncomfortable, ruffle their feathers, et cetera, et cetera. But then the last piece of this, the last piece that I want to touch on is the possibility of an unsound mind. And I've touched on this numerous times throughout my podcasting uh, years to this point. As I said at the top of the episode, this is episode 670. So many times in what is approaching 700 episodes, I've touched on this as being, I think, a way in which the saints will be persecuted and are already being persecuted in the modern world, in the postmodern world, the post-truth world. But those who are operating, thinking, speaking counter to the prevailing wisdom, the wisdom of the world so-called, will increasingly be dismissed as crazy people. Irrational, but not just 
irrational in the sense that, hey, we disagree, irrational like they have a psychiatric condition that should be re-educated or administered therapy to or given medication for. And this is a very, very disturbing way in which Christians can expect to be persecuted in our context. This is a very, very disturbing form of persecution. Believe me when I say it's not new, and in the Soviet Union, for instance, abuse of psychiatry was used to punish, to make examples of, to silence critics, those who were critical of the government, the state, which was said to be the people. So where did culture end and where did politics pick up? In the Soviet Union, everything was under this big umbrella of the needs of the people, the state, the community, the Soviet, the revolution. And those who were critical in any regard of this whole kit and caboodle or anyone administering it, administering the communist state in the Soviet Union, for instance, for example, they could be thrown in an insane asylum and given medication that wasn't actually supposed to make them better. It was supposed to make them sick so that they were easier to write off. They were easier to dismiss. In the United States, we see a variation on this with all of the talk of phobias. So if somebody is critical of homosexuality for years now, they've been dismissed by the radical left and by the mainstream media and by social media, not just as hateful, which is to say bad motives are being ascribed to them, right? A bad heart is being ascribed to them, but they've been dismissed as phobic, which is to say that they have irrational fears, which is to say that they're mentally ill, which is to say you don't have to listen to what they have to say on anything because they're a mentally ill person. You don't get into the weeds of debating back and forth with a mentally ill person. You just lock them away or you pull them off to the side and you say they're there and you act very patronizing to them until they realize that they are unwell. And you have to first talk them into themselves being themselves being uh, unwell before you can administer the treatment. But then what is that all contingent on? The fact that they would be actually unwell. If they're not unwell, then you are making them less well and you are harming them. You're bearing false witness against them. This isn't the no big deal category. This is actually a violation of one of the top 10 commandments that God wrote with his own finger on tablets of stone and gave to Moses to bring down from Mount Sinai. To bear false witness against your neighbor would certainly include implying that he is either operating from bad motives when he's not, or that he is a fool when he's not, or that he is a crazy person when he's not. Because what do all three of those have in common if what's motivating your diagnosis or your labeling, your categorizing of a person, what's driving that is a desire to silence that person, to remove their influence, not just from your own heart and mind, from the hearts and the minds of other people in the vicinity. This is a very serious thing. It's a kind of violence to 
damage somebody's reputation in an unfair way. But this is a very difficult problem to deal with by the nature of it, because once you have stuck somebody with the label of being hateful, then if they get upset at being dismissed as hateful, then you say, ah, see, you're being very hateful right now. You're all angry and upset. Before we can talk about anything, we've got to get you to not be angry anymore, right? The big problem in a pietistic kind of emotivism is how are you feeling? And so we have to fix that first. Never mind whether how you're feeling is related to what's happening, if sins are being committed against you or other people, if untruths are being promulgated. You have to have the correct holy feelings and then you will be able to be fully human again. Then we can talk about the particulars. But then by that point, by that point, you will have had to tell yourself a new story if the big idea, the first priority was to just not be upset about things. And so this ends up being a very manipulative way, a very, very sinister way of silencing people who are upset about legitimate things. They have legitimate complaints. And instead of getting confession and repentance from those they confront, still more sins are piled on. And in a dysfunctional family, oh, by the way, the one who talks about the problems in the family and wants to talk through them, work through them, is very, very, very often turned into the problem by those who don't want to talk about the problems in the family. That is a hallmark. Look it up. Don't take my word for it. Fact check me, please. That is a hallmark of dysfunctional families that the one who wants to talk about the problems in the family is turned into the problem. Well, if you would just stop talking about it, we wouldn't have that problem. This wouldn't even be an issue. You need to just let it go and let's move on. But wait a second. If we're supposed to be pursuing righteousness, if we're talking family of believers, household of faith, if we're talking brothers in Christ, if we're talking the church, which belongs to God, or if we're talking our country, you know, that's an interesting thing you notice with regards to these passages in Deuteronomy, talking about brothers. And the context clearly is countrymen, fellow Israelites, or those who are cousins after a fashion. You shall not abhor an Edomite, verse 7, Deuteronomy 23, for he is your brother. And you think, well, is he really? Like, do all the Israelites have Edomite brothers? Don't take it so literally. Brother is just a stand-in for kin. You have the same common ancestor not so many generations ago. That's what that's about. If we're talking about brothers in a national identity sense, or if we're talking about brothers in a Christian sense, or if we're talking about brothers in a flesh and blood family sort of a sense, in all regards, if we want righteousness, if we want the righteousness of God, we want to honor God, we have to be willing to talk about problems that are real problems without rushing to the ad hominem attack. You can't just fall back on, well, I don't know if this person is even a Christian because they disagreed with me on that. That's, again, a sign of a dysfunctional dynamic in the family. That's an unhealthy way of 
cutting the legs out from under somebody who might be bringing a legitimate complaint or a legitimate concern up in the assembly. And maybe you just don't want to talk about that thing. And so this is your selfish ambition and vain conceit finding its tactic. You need to consider that. That's a possibility. Now, I bring it up with regards to me and the podcasting because first and foremost, I should start there because I'm reading through the Bible and I'm talking through all these current events items. I'm trying to, with other men in our church, launch the Welfare of the City Project and the Ecclesia Forum, which, oh, by the way, I don't believe is pretentious or high-minded of us. This is very much the concern and the business of those we are calling to, we are inviting to participate. This is very much all of our business. If we live here within earshot of the announcements in Greeley, in Northern Colorado, in Colorado, in the U.S., this is our business. What's being done by our representatives in our name with our signature after a fashion, with our approval, that's on our account. And we should probably come together and reason it out. What would be good? What would be true? What would be a better consensus? Because what we've got right now is clearly not so good, not so true as we could hope. But I bring up the potential that some people would put me on too much of a pedestal and they would think the wisdom is my wisdom. This truth is my truth and they like my truth. No, no, this is God's truth. If what I'm saying is true, it's true because God so ordered the universe. If what I'm saying is good, it's because God is good and he has established goodness and righteousness. He has told us what is righteous in his word. If what I'm saying is wise, it's not my wisdom, it's the wisdom of God. And you don't have to take my word for it. In fact, go read it for yourself. But then for those who would be dismissive, if they would say, this is coming from a place of bad motives, sometimes it might be, and that's irrelevant to whether what I am saying is true. Dig into whether what I'm saying is true, first and foremost. And if we need to have a conversation about my motives, how I'm saying it or where my heart's at, where my attitude is at, let's have that conversation. Just be careful because it's too easy these days to just label whatever we hate hearing someone say hate speech and therefore thereby censor them or permit them to be censored and make all kinds of excuses for it. Every form of vile practice will be promulgated more and more in society if if we are always making excuses for the silencing of people with concerns because it's said that they are hate-filled or phobic. And that's the other thing. If every time somebody would dare to speak up and they would say, hey, this is not okay, this is not appropriate, they would dare to speak truth and do what is right, and then they suffer for it, if we distance ourselves from them. And we say, well, clearly they have no credibility because look at what happened to them. (laughs) Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. Maybe sometimes I suffer for reasons other than righteousness. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you too quickly come to the conclusion that those who suffer when they say what is true must not have actually been telling the truth or those who suffer when they tell the truth may have been telling the truth, but they shouldn't have been because... Look at look what it got them. Look look where that look where that landed them. Whoa, 
whoa, whoa, whoa, what are the implications, right? What are the implications for how we read our Bibles? You know, maybe we're coming to those kinds of conclusions because we haven't been reading our Bibles. We haven't been studying the Word. We haven't been paying all that close of attention when others for years have been sharing with us from the Word. But then also, if we are going back to the Word, how are we reading about the prophets of old? How are we reading what's said of the disciples, the apostles, or of Jesus for that matter? We want to take care that we don't do what the scribes and the Pharisees did with regards to Jesus, where they said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. And that sounds an awful lot like those who say you shouldn't get involved in politics. And then as soon as you start talking politics, it's like, oh, see, you're just doing the same thing that the world is doing. And if you won, right, if you succeeded, we would dismiss it as, oh, well, yeah, but you basically compromised and you threw out everything in God's word. Careful, careful, careful. That could be coming from a place of envy. That could be coming from a place of jealousy. Make sure you are able to differentiate what you're getting out of God's word to define what is permissible, what is lawful, what is beneficial, even what is imperative, and what is just coming from within you, and it's been nurtured, cultivated, encouraged by a popular sentiment that's very democratic. But, 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 as I came to think about it in reading The Conservative Mind from Burke to Eliot by Russell Kirk, Pure democracy is atheism. How much of our thinking on these things is really just excessively democratic, high value placed on the judgments of the majority? As in the will of the people, 51% or more, is our God after a fashion. And our God changes all the time. And that's why we have to keep taking polls, because somehow the polling will justify drastically changing our approach to morality or truth. Lick your finger, hold it up in the air, see which way the wind is blowing, and that will decide whether you say that true thing today, whether you do that good thing today. Careful, careful, careful. Let's dig into this passage, Deuteronomy 23, because, oh, by the way, there's plenty enough. Whether or not you would be offended by me or you would think I am crazy person, a disordered mind. You have plenty enough to be offended by in just Deuteronomy 23. Plenty enough. And if I'm just reading through this one chapter at a time, as I read each successive chapter, I am giving you just in reading the words, plenty enough to go on to be ruffled. For instance, verses one through eight, gives us all kinds of people who are excluded from the assembly of Yahweh. Excluded means they cannot come in. They cannot participate in the assembly of Yahweh. You may think diversity, equity, and inclusion is deity, D-E-I as deity, as one Democrat from, I believe it was Oklahoma, if memory serves, famously said, maybe it was Nebraska. You may think of DEI increasingly as deity, as the will of God. We want diversity. We want equity. We want inclusion. And we will know that we are loving God and loving one another if we follow whatever we're told to do. If we say whatever we're told to say in the interest of DEI. Here is a list of people who are not included. They are excluded. 
They are not permitted to participate. And for starters, anyone who's a man who has crushed testicles or who's been castrated, he is excluded. And that might be a head scratcher. And you might be like, oh, Garrett, why do you have to talk about that? Right? Why? It's in the word. It's in God's word. I pledged, I said, and I need to let my yes be yes and my no be no. I said I was going to read through a chapter at a time, and here we are. Verse 1 is in there. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Why is this one profitable? Why is it important to note? There are similar passages throughout the Old Testament in particular about this or that animal that would be offered as a sacrifice needing to be without blemish. Also, those who serve as priests need to be without blemish. Also, in this case, the assembly of Yahweh generally should not include men who have had traumatic injuries to their reproductive organs. And there is something significant in particular about the men. And I don't think it's just that men, you know, may encounter more occasions in which they would have an injury to their reproductive organs. You know, external organs versus internal organs. Uh, it's easier for something to happen, you know, especially if you're out and about farming, ranching, hunting, hiking, fighting, making war. There's more occasion. Men typically live more dangerous lives. But then also, too, there's something qualitatively different about men in terms of God's ordering of the human race and the family and society and, yes, the nation and in the New Testament, the church. There's something particular. There's something particular. When we get qualifications for overseers and deacons, there's a lot of spiritual, mental, emotional consideration. But before you get, (laughs) if you'll forgive me, before you get to questions of character, as in, does he manage his household well? Is he the husband of one wife? Is he a, a monogamist in good standing? Before you get to questions of, is he addicted to too much wine? Is he violent? Is he quarrelsome? Is he a brawler? Can he teach, right? Has he studied and cultivated an ability to communicate and to impart wisdom and knowledge to others. Before you get to any of that, you know what? The first the first qualification for an overseer and deacon is that he's a man. And it, in our day, it doesn't go without saying anymore, what is a man? How do you know if he's a man? Here's a hint. You don't just ask a human being, a person, are you a man? Because in our day, you may hear yes, but the answer is actually no. You may have cases where because of paganism, because of sinfulness, because of wickedness, because of a resentment of the truth more generally, a love of sin more pervasively, you may have somebody who is a woman who says, yes, I'm a man. Why? Because she wants to be a man, because she's at odds with the way that God actually created her She doesn't want to be subject to him, and she does not want to be subject to the responsibilities and the purpose that he created her for, and so she just throws it all off and flaunts her rebellion for everybody and asks and even demands in our context others to participate in that rebellion by affirming her 
preferred pronouns. And does that cut it? No pun intended. Does that suffice in the qualifications for overseers and deacons? So for instance, for example, can you play word games with a woman, for instance, who declares herself a man and maybe even gets married, right? She marries a woman and could you say she's the husband of one wife? Uh, No, you couldn't, right? You can't. That's not open to you. That's not permissible. You want to talk about bad motives. And if you want to talk about mental illness, it's either coming from a place of being profoundly unwell mentally and emotionally and spiritually, or it's coming from a place of bad intent, bad intent towards God, bad intent towards your neighbor to try and make that work, to try and appease the world so that the world will either leave you be or reward you. No, the first test of whether a human being is male or female comes the instant of birth as the child exits the birth canal. You might have to flip them over, but it's a boy is verified by, does this child have a penis? Yes or no? Penis and testicles. Yep, it's a boy. All there is to it. Does this child have that hardware? No? Then it's not a boy, right? It's not a boy without this, without these articles, without these items, these parts of the body. And there's more to it than that. But what is all bound up in whether a boy or a man has those appendages? Well, typically, the level of testosterone in the body, typically the level of aggression or assertiveness, how risk tolerant they're going to be, maybe even how dominant they're going to be. But you might say instead of dominant, if you don't like the word dominant because we're so effeminized, confident. And yet this is the first verse in Deuteronomy 23. For those who are excluded from the assembly, it's men, this is going to have to be men, whose testicles are crushed, whose male organ is cut off. They cannot enter the assembly of Yahweh. I think there's a profound symbolic importance to that. There's a significance to it, and it might make you uncomfortable, but don't shoot the messenger. I didn't write it. Take it up with God. Also, no one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of Yahweh. What would be a forbidden union? Very clearly, this would be any sexual activity that results in pregnancy, which God has said is forbidden. That's what this is getting at. So incestuous relationships, for instance, adulterous relationships, for instance, those would be forbidden unions. And you can say, well, that's not fair though. I mean, it's not the fault of somebody who's born into that kind of a scenario. Why would God say that they're excluded? And the simple answer, the short answer is, I don't fully know. I don't know. That's a great question. I don't know, except that we know there's going to be an effect. If this is incest, there's going to be effect genetically. But then even if it's not incest, there's an effect in the way that that child is brought up, raised. And this is a big argument that the pro-choice, pro-abortion folks are always making about how there need to be exceptions for abortion. We need abortion to be legal because what about in the cases of rape and incest? 
And what do they mean by that? Well, this child is not going to be wanted and how they'll be raised, how they'll be cared for. And this is, if you go back to Margaret Sanger and that generation of eugenicists, this is what they were reasoning. This child, if allowed to live, not being wanted, is going to be neglected or else abused. And when this child grows up, they will either be criminals or insane or sick or poorly educated or immoral. Any way you slice it, they will be a burden to society. And so we just don't want them to make it to adulthood in the first place. We can lower our crime rates. We can increase our general character, the quality of humans in our country if we just abort them talk their mother into aborting them because she's filled with shame perhaps, or the father is filled with shame at how it came to be that this pregnancy happened in the first place or resulted. And the pro-choice, the pro-abort folks, what they're arguing for is murder, right? What we're reading here in Deuteronomy 23.2 is not murder. If it said you can't enter the assembly of Yahweh, even to the 10th generation, that's not murder any more than it's murder if you tell the man in verse 1 who has crushed testicles or he's been castrated, he's a eunuch, if you say you can't enter the assembly of Yahweh, that's not murder. Now, he may feel excluded, and you know what? That's because he is being excluded. He's literally being excluded. And if God said to exclude him, well, then that's what it is. If God said to exclude somebody who's born of a forbidden union from the assembly of Yahweh, then that's what it is. Verse 3, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly, even to the 10th generation. So, by the way, this is being lumped in with, in terms of consequences, a forbidden union. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of Yahweh, even to the 10th generation. None of them, none of them may enter the assembly of Yahweh forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way. And they hired Balaam, son of Baor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Now, that's curious, right? So there's a moral stain, it would seem, on the Ammonites and the Moabites that carries down through the generations. But then at a certain point, 10 generations, that moral stain is diluted enough, it would seem, through intermarriage and through other choices having been made in the interim. 10 generations is a long time, but it's not forever. That is a few hundred years, but that's not forever. And again, if we would recoil, if we would say, oh, I don't like that, just take care. I didn't write it. Do you possibly have ought against? Do you have a beef with? Do you have a complaint against the righteousness, the wisdom, the fairness of God? Please don't. Now, verse 7 might be easier for you. You shall not abhor, which is hate, don't hate, don't despise an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian. That's interesting, right? The implications for that, given that Israel was oppressed and they were slaves in Egypt, it's very curious that God says, you're not allowed to hate the Egyptians because you were a sojourner in their land for quite some time, by the way. And there's something about being a guest, having been welcomed, even just initially, even if there were offenses after that initial welcome, There's something about being a guest that is sacred. Hospitality is sacred. Skipping on down. 
uncleanness in the camp. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, partly because it's gross and I'm not trying to gross you out. And yes, I am uncomfortable with it, but the nocturnal emissions, uh, it's pretty self-evident that what is being referred to here is hygiene, but also not just physical cleanliness. More significant than that is God disciplining his people to regard their camp as a dwelling place for Yahweh, their God. Out of respect for God, in our day, we might take off our hat during a prayer. And I'm very pleased to report that I heard the Greeley young men, the Greeley teenage boys, when they went off to DTC down in Alamosa, Colorado, here this past week, I heard a good report of them that when it was time to pray, they all took off their hats for the prayer, as is appropriate as is respectful and honorable. And there were a number of men behind them and around them who were older and should have known better, quite frankly, who did not remove their hats. And that is to say, I'm very proud of my sons and the other young men from our church here in Greeley for having honored the Lord, removing their caps. You should understand that something like that is being communicated in this verses 9 through 14 section about uncleanness in the camp. And then verse 15, I really want to talk about verse 15 because so much in the U.S. here, so much that is dysfunctional, you can trace back in the particulars to how the Civil War in the mid-19th century was prosecuted, how it was fought on both sides, and perhaps more importantly, how the peace was managed, how Reconstruction went. So much of what is dysfunctional in the U.S. can be traced back to unresolved conflict, North versus South, Union versus Confederacy. And the most radical abolitionists, by the way, in many cases when they couldn't defend their claims that slavery was, bar none, a sin, when they couldn't defend those claims from Scripture, and they couldn't answer the arguments of those who said, well, no, slavery is never outlawed, it's never forbidden, it's only regulated in the Bible. When they couldn't keep up in the theological debate, according to Mark A. Knoll's excellent work, The Civil War is a Theological Crisis, what they did was they basically just deconverted. They just abandoned any pretense of Christian faith. Why? Because they had elevated man's reason for one, but also liberty. They had elevated liberty to the position of an idol. Liberty became to them a false god. We even have a giant copper statue in the harbor in New York City, and it is an idol, uh, quite frankly. You can appreciate the sentiment, but it's an idol. And liberty for those radical abolitionists was such an idol in their hearts before it was a statue on Ellis Island, it was such an idol in their hearts that they abandoned the Christian faith. And we're still living with the ramifications of that. And oh, by the way, not all of them who left the Christian faith actually left the churches or gave up their pulpits or gave up their teaching positions, gave up their title of theologian. Many who left Christian faith stayed on because the cause would be furthered 
if they promoted liberty in the abstract under the guise of Christian teaching, whether or not it was always Christian. This is where we get liberal theology in many regards. It's a false gospel. Jake Gresham Macon was right about that. These are the Gnostics. <clears throat> These are the Judaizers. These are the perpetrators of false gospels in our day, false teachers, these liberal theologians, these liberal pastors, these liberal denominations. But here in verse 15 and 16, we see the goodness of God. We see the fairness of God. We see the justice of God. And those who were impatient and had erected an idol in their hearts, at least, to liberty and didn't study, they just abandoned the faith. They just walked away from it, gave up on orthodoxy. They missed it. Verse 15 and 16, you shall not give up to his master, a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. Friends, this is the basis, the moral basis for having had an underground railroad for slaves to escape the South and go North. This is the moral basis in God's word. And oh, by the way, the South was terribly, terribly disobedient and wicked. They were right to point out that slavery was never forbidden outright. Slavery isn't per se a sin, but insofar as slavery was regulated, and they were right to point that out, when they did not regulate slavery and the institution of slavery in the South, the way that God's word would have called them to, they were sinning. They wanted to use the word of God for license, but they didn't want any responsibility to the word of God, which is to say that they also had erected personal individual liberty as a kind of idol, a false God in their hearts. If they would have read and studied closely with good intentions from pure motives, they would have caught this you shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. Now, why is that, right? Why would you think that might be? If a slave escapes from his master, that implies that his master was mistreating him, which also implies that it is possible for a master to mistreat a slave, which is to say that when God says, don't hand him over, don't make him go back, God is showing mercy and he's providing a check against cruel masters, harsh, severe masters. You shall not give up to his master, a slave who has escaped from his master to you. What is that also to say? You are showing hospitality. You are commanded to show hospitality to this slave. Don't violate that by putting the slave in a different category. He's a man. He is a man and... You have a duty. You have an obligation to show hospitality. Verse 17 and 18. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. None of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of Yahweh your God in payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to Yahweh your God. Now, this was a common thing, by the way. The cult prostitutes were very common for other religions, for the worship of other gods, it was very typical <clears throat> that there would be specially dedicated to the temple, to the shrine, to that god, prostitutes 
who not only would you pay money to, to have sex with, but you would also be, because they were a cult prostitute, participating in worship of some kind of a union with that false god, that demon god. And here God says, none of your sons or your daughters are to be that, to participate in that. And lest we get the wrong idea that you can mix these things in, you can have a little bit of the worship of the nations, a little bit of a worship of the nation's gods, a little bit of that sprinkled in with your worship of Yahweh God. If that's how you make your money, your money's no good here. It's not. That's dirty money. The money is an abomination. The fee that a prostitute would be paid, or as the phrase goes, the wages of a dog, a dog here being a male prostitute, by the way, enough said, the money is an abomination to Yahweh. He doesn't want that money. It's dirty money. It's gross. Verse 19 and 20, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Here, brother means not just flesh and blood, the son of your father, the son of your mother. Here, brother means your countrymen, your fellow Israelite. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, on food, on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest that Yahweh your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. What if, friends, what if it were not possible to charge interest to Americans? What if Americans were not permitted to loan at interest, borrow at interest from one another? What if? Can you imagine what that would do? You could say, well, but how are the people who loan out the money supposed to make money? And I would say, they should get out there, get off their butts and work. They put their money to work, but they should actually get to work themselves, quite simply. That's what it is. And at a certain point, if there's not some kind of a major reform, there will be a revolution and then their hands will be forced. I dare say, we can't even imagine it being illegal against the law for loans to be made at interest domestically. Now, foreign countries, foreign people, yes, you can loan money to them and that makes a lot of sense. And of course, you're going to be careful who you loan money to if they're in a foreign country. There's no skipping town. Like they're not from here anyways. You assume that they're going to be in a foreign land because they came from a foreign land. And so, yes, you're taking on a risk in loaning them anything. And so maybe you won't, or maybe you'll charge a good rate. If they're visiting with you, they're not from here. They're not going to be from here. They're not becoming one of your people. They're just passing through. They're just here to trade. Yes, you can loan at interest, but your own countrymen, I think it would be wise if our financial system had to abide by this. I think that would be wise. That would be very good for the folks who are trapped in a cycle of poverty. This law, this standard with regards to interest and also the year of Jubilee, I think both and would be much wiser than what we have right now because what we have right now is not sustainable. Verse 21 and 22 and 23 talks about making a vow to Yahweh, don't delay in fulfilling it. Yahweh your God will surely require it of you. And if you don't do what you vowed, 
you have sinned. If you refrain from vowing, verse 22, you will not be guilty of sin, which is to say, very similar to what Jesus in the Gospels tells us, don't swear by anything. Don't swear by anything. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Verse 23, you shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to Yahweh your God what you have promised with your mouth. Do what you say you're going to do. And if you're not sure you're going to do it, if you're not sure you want to do it, if you're not sure you should do it, don't make the promise. Don't say you're going to do something you're not sure you're going to do or which you have no intention of doing. Now, if you thought you were going to do it, you really intended to do it, and then it just didn't work out, there's a whole category of law for that, which we've passed through. It's called a hasty vow. It is a sin to break a hasty vow, but it might just be the lesser of two evils. And yes, I said that. And yes, that's biblical. It might be the lesser of two evils for you to have broken your vow than for you to try to fulfill it because you're going to commit a greater sin by trying to fulfill it when you're not able to, like you thought you would be. Or you shouldn't, like you thought you should. Verses 24 and 25, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes as many as you wish. You shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand. You shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Now, I'll give you a a brief analogy here. When I went over to my friend and pastor's house, Paul Pavlik's house, last night to play some board games with him and our friend Aaron Didlake, Paul's lovely wife, also named Aaron, which is not confusing at all, uh, Aaron Pavlik, Erin is how it's spelled instead of A.A. Ron, as in the case of Mr. Didlake, Paul's wife made a delicious meal of chicken and rice and broccoli and garlic bread. And it would have been, I felt, rude for me to say, no, I don't want any. And so I had a plate and it was delicious. By the way, it smelled amazing and it was delicious. And I said, thank you very much for their hospitality. What would have been even more rude than saying, oh, no, thank you, I just ate, would have been if I had gone rummaging through their pantry and just started grabbing out boxes and bags of various things that hadn't even been opened from the grocery store. And if I just walked out with that, how bizarre would that be? What would you say? What would you think? Of course, you would be like, hey, bring that back. No, 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 no. Crazy person. No, right? That is abusing hospitality. And so there's a requirement to be hospitable that we should actually rediscover, I think, as Americans. It would be really healthy for us. It would be really good for us, very wise for us to rediscover hospitality. But then the flip side of it is, if you're enjoying someone's hospitality, say, for instance, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard or his standing grain, don't abuse their hospitality. That's the big idea. Don't abuse it because what happens when you abuse hospitality, you're discouraging it and there will be less of it in future. And then the hearts of men grow cold and then it's hard to be brothers. It's hard to live in harmony with one another and make decisions together as a community. And I think that's also a large part of what is not so good and and not so healthy. It's very broken. It's very dysfunctional in our society today. There's a lot of selfish ambition and vain conceit in the way that we do hospitality, whether we're giving hospitality or we're receiving it, there's a lot of bad motives that have bad outcomes, ultimately. Not blessed, don't do it. Don't, Don't do that. Don't be that way. 
So in conclusion, right? And that's all we're getting to in this episode. And that's quite enough, right? There's quite enough. I thought about talking about some current events items, but then I was looking at this passage, this chapter, and there's so much here. There really is that bears mentioning, it bears talking through, thinking through. In conclusion, I would ask you to not be offended for your own sake. If this is the word of God, don't be offended by the word of God. Humble yourselves before the Lord. God gives grace to the humble. If God has something to teach us here, the only way we learn it is if we come in humility asking. And even then, we maybe don't have all of our answers this life, this side of the eschaton, but it's still a blessing to ask. And God blesses the humble. So if you humble yourself in that way, asking God, what do you want to teach me in this passage or these passages or these kinds of passages? You should expect that that will be a life-giving thing. That will be healing for your soul. The business about being sanitary, being hygienic, and how that relates after a fashion to holiness, it really does actually remind me of the old saying that cleanliness is next to godliness. And it's not to say that if you're not perfectly holy and you're not perfectly clean all the time, well, that's it, right? You're excluded from the assembly in the context of the church. No, no. Understand God's trying to teach us something through Israel in Deuteronomy, and it's not a one-to-one, but there is a correlation. There is something that carries over because we're still called to be holy for he is holy. We're still called to righteousness and to being clean instead of unclean after a fashion. And that's not all just what goes on with the immaterial part of yourself, your soul, your heart, your mind. It also does pertain to what you would do physically. Don't be dirty and gross and nasty and rude and selfish and irreverent physically. You can communicate, just like the removing of a hat during a prayer, you can communicate respect and discipline yourself internally by practicing certain disciplines externally. Be careful that you don't take it too far and think that the outward sign is the ultimate reality, the ultimate fulfillment, but it's not either or. It really isn't. That shouldn't be. Understand where to put hospitality in your order of priorities, even for those who you might regard as lowly. Don't show partiality, right? And that is one of the temptations, obviously, when it comes to verses 15 and 16. If a slave comes to you seeking refuge, asking for sanctuary, he's escaped from his master, his master was cruel, harsh, mean, you might be tempted to show partiality to the master. Why? Because obviously he's got means for one thing and for another thing, if he was cruel and harsh to his slave, will he be attempting to be cruel and harsh with you as well if you take in few shelter and are hospitable to the slave that ran from him? Don't show partiality. Don't accept a bribe. Don't give in to threats. Protect that one who has come to you asking for asylum. But then also, too, understand the separation and the distinction. You know, those who are of your own country, their daughters, their sons are not to be engaged in cult prostitution. And oh, by the way, you're not supposed to charge interest. That's an interesting thing to talk about right after 
the prostitution piece because we would say absolutely, 100%, oh, totally, right? Totally. The prostitution thing, that still applies today. And then the interest on loans in the very next paragraph, we would say, oh, yeah, but that was just for them, right? That was Israel. Wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. I'm not saying you have to follow these things to become righteous, but if you're called to righteousness, don't be so quick to write it off because that might be that might be just real politic. That might be you being entirely too pragmatic. And maybe it's not going to change a lick of what is going on politically, economically in our country anytime soon, but it might change how we engage in conversation and debates about economic interests. It might change the way that we engage just even in private transactions. Somebody asks us to loan them whatever privately. And as a Christian, if we say, oh, no, 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 it's fine. Yeah, just pay me back when you can. No, I'm not, I'm not going to charge you interest. No, no, no. Could there not be a reward in that if that is part of <clears throat> righteousness according to God and you're doing it because you love God, you love your neighbor as yourself? Well, then. Well, then, I have to believe there's a blessing in that. And there might be very real, tangible, practical benefits as well. Because, oh, by the way, the same reason your brother was borrowing from you in the first place, maybe the interest just digs the hole deeper for him in the long run. And you're actually taking the benefit that he was wanting to borrow in order to incur, and maybe even then some, something to think about. That is something to think about. Lastly, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Say what you mean. Mean what you say. Be plain spoken. And the best way to not break promises is be careful to not make promises you can't keep. Sounds simple, but your integrity, the integrity of what you say is very important to God. And it should be very important to the people around you. And if it's not important to the people around you, maybe you're surrounded by the wrong people. The integrity of you meaning what you say and saying what you mean is very, very important. And we should act like it. We should talk like it. We should think like it. But all that is to say, I'm out of time. I got to run. I really do. I got to get to work. I really appreciate you being here. If you're still listening, for as long as you have been listening, kudos to you. I hope it was beneficial to you. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.